0: The COVID-19 pandemic has turned our world upside down. Meeting this challenge is bigger than any Australian. From how we work, and how we live. Stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home. Don't travel. To the very basics of human interaction. Keep that social distance. If
1: you're in an enclosed space, you should be wearing a mask.
0: This is a time of total upheaval. It is a test of our nation. If you want this to be over, you've got to follow the rules. For many, 2020 will be the toughest year of our lives. And as we look to life beyond the virus, we ask, so now what? Today, human connection how we engage and interact with each other and what happens when those connections break. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, the patterns of human interaction in our lives were changing. More of us were living alone than ever before. And that's to say nothing of our increasingly online lives and the way in which that has contributed to what is now record rates of loneliness.
2: You need to practise that social distancing when you're seeing friends at their houses as well. Don't all
1: clam in together, no hugs, none of that. You can't do that.
0: Then of course, it's in that context that the pandemic arrives and with it, the forced isolation and separation of lockdowns and social distancing. The most basic of human experiences and contacts was just ripped from our lives. Handshakes became elbow bumps and workplaces were reduced to Zoom meetings. A lot of us were forced to lock ourselves away at home, away from friends and family. Easter in Australia will be different this year, as it will be all around the world. It's still true that we'll be able to gather together in our immediate family, but there won't be the opportunity for that extended family gathering. So this Easter, we are staying at home. Don't travel, don't go away. The changes to our lives and our communities have been comprehensive, they've been profound. We don't yet know how long lasting. And they're the questions that we want to tackle today. What will normal look like as far as human connection is concerned when the pandemic has passed? To help me work through this, a virtual elbow bump to author and commentator Sarah Wilson, whose most recent book, This One Wild and Precious Life, tackles the disconnection of modern life. And psychologist Sabina Reid, whose podcast, Human Cogs, explores all the things that bring us together and tear us apart. Thanks to both of you for... Being prepared to speak to me about this today.
3: Thank you. Yeah, good to be here.
0: It is. It's good to be talking to someone, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I want to begin with that theme, actually. There's a lot that is grouped under this, but loneliness, I think, is the core of what we're talking about. I think it's worth identifying up front that this has been a creeping issue for a long time and that it's a really, really serious issue you know, there have been studies that have said that the, the neural pathways that loneliness sets off in us are the same neural pathways that we experience when we go through hunger, for example. It's that visceral a need. Sarah, I might start with you on that. Give us a sense of the loneliness crisis that we had.
1: I think there needs to be a distinction made. There are legitimately lonely people who are very much isolated. And during COVID, that number increased. About 20 to 60% of us in the world live in single-person households. So when we were all going into isolation, we were very, very much isolated.
3: We all live in families, we all live in households, and none of us have had visitors for a very long time.
1: So that became legit loneliness. What I think is the larger issue that often gets confused here is that we confuse loneliness for aloneness. And while many of us are living sort of, you know, in hyper-connected ways, we're still feeling very lonely. And what's now been discussed in a more robust way, and I think this is something that is actually more interesting to discuss, and I'm sure Sabina's got something to say on this, is that what we're feeling more so is not so much, I mean, we've got more connections, social connections than ever before, right? And in Australia, we've got the millennials have got some of the highest social connections in the world. And yet are the most lonely people in the world. When we're talking about the worst kind of loneliness, it's, it's a, a loneliness from, connect, from meaningful connections. So we've got more connections than ever before, but it's the lack of meaningful connections, not only to other people, but to ourselves and also to almost the meaningful matrix of life. Right. And there's a whole range of reasons behind that that go to more interesting, deeper, nuanced levels.
0: I want to get to those interesting, deeper nuanced levels because I think, that, I think that's really where it becomes genuinely fascinating. But I want to get there in a second because, Sabine, I want you to come in on that idea that perhaps our focus should be not on the, the number of connections. And I'm a bit. It gets my cackles up, that word connections, because I feel like it's the kind of thing that a technology company uses to spruik its wares. It's it's about the richness of those connections.
3: It is about, yeah. Yeah. And the,
0: the character of those connections, isn't it?
3: Yes. And if I had to use one word, it's about the, the well, there are two words. It's about the perceived quality of those connections. And I think I agree with everything that Sarah said, but it's important that we we recognize this is through our own lens of perception. And so someone can be so-called connected, as we say, online or even in person with many people. But loneliness is really about the perception of the quality of the relationships we have as opposed to um, the quantity of relationships we have. And the perception piece is meaningful here because if we feel that the relationships we have fulfill us, satisfy us, and that we are able to do that in in a bidirectional way with the other person or other parties as well, then that sense of loneliness is diminished. And I think what Sarah's tapping into there is that on a grander scale, on a collective scale, we've lost a lot of sense of meaning and purpose and relatability. And I I don't think this is just to do with COVID. I'm cautious to to throw everything in the COVID bubble and say that everything was tickety-boo prior to COVID. It wasn't. And, And it never has been where humans are concerned.
0: Sarah, you mentioned that this is where the richness and the nuance is. I want to throw at you a quote that came from Ian Hickey. So he's the co-director of Sydney University's Brain and Mind Centre, and he's talking about loneliness. Um, He goes quite structural on this in explaining why we're in this epidemic of loneliness, as you've described. And he says, it's an unintended consequence of affluence, good health, and long lives. This is an international phenomenon in developed countries where life expectancy and wealth have increased and there's no mutual responsibility to take care of each other within family groups or communities because you can buy the services you need, you can be completely non-participatory in your local community. Do you think he's framed that right?
1: I do. I I actually did hear him um, use that phraseology in an interview reasonably recently and I sort of, you know, air-punched at the time. I, I totally agree with that. What he probably is leaving out of that descriptor is, well, why has this happened? And if we're going to say that this is a reasonably recent phenomenon, but albeit before COVID, I would say it's very much um, kind of been driven in tandem with capitalism or neoliberalism and the central tenets of which, well, there's two things, and and, um, Dr. Hickey talks or Professor Hickey talks about these two things. This is what he's alluding to. First of all, we have seen the rise of the individual, the economic unit um, over the sense of community, and so community structures and economists are actually referring to it as, as the moral umpires of our society, such as trade unions, churches that ordained a Sabbath and brought us together on a you know one day a week you know, trade unions and human resources departments that would ensure that we didn't overwork and that we had time to spend with family. There was all these kind of moral guardrails that would keep us on the straight and narrow and would prevent us from becoming too individualistic, which is our kind of urge to a certain extent, but we also need community to survive. So we have dismantled a lot of the structures that, that prioritised community. So that's one thing he's speaking to. And the neoliberal system has facilitated that the other aspect to this is that much of the technological advancement, a lot of the um, sort of economic drivers have been about protecting ourselves, particularly our children and young people, from discomfort. So, discomfort has become something that we don't have um, a dialogue around. And we now talk about resilience as being the big issue, say, than anxiety or even loneliness. We're actually lacking resilience to handle what have been things that existed, as Sabina said, for time immemorial, right? So, loneliness and discomfort, they are part of life. But we've lost the resilience, and that's primarily because. If you think about it, technology over the last 20 years hasn't been about advancing human thought or ethical understandings. It's been mostly about protecting us from discomfort. So we don't even have to worry or wonder how long our pizza is going to take because there's an app that has a little green orb that follows it as it comes through the suburbs. Australian teenagers, the number of teenagers going out and getting their driver's licence has dropped for the first time in history, I believe.
0: Yes, I've read this. Yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't it?
1: And you might think it's because everyone, you know, these kids are too scared to go and sit their test. It's actually because they don't want to actually leave the home and go and socialise in real life, which is what the car and having a driver's licence was all about. It was a rite of passage to leave the home and sort of venture out into the world. And the studies show that it's actually, it's not because they're scared of the test, it's they're scared of interacting with other people.
0: And they also have no need for it, right? Because they can do their interaction without leaving the house. It's like, remember the good old days when the social problems of young people were things like alcohol abuse and teen pregnancy and things like that? Um, That sort of stuff is really in decline, which is to the good. But the offshoot of that is the increasing anxiety, the increasing loneliness. Sabina, I want to um, bring you in on that because I'm just thinking about the apps that Sarah mentions there, for example, the cult of convenience, you might call it, the way that we live our lives. Once upon a time, if you wanted something, you had to get up and go and engage with someone who would sell that thing to you rather than just order it to come to your home in a faceless way. That's obviously that kind of ordering has taken off in the pandemics, particularly under lockdown. Psychologically, what happens to us when everything becomes channeled through convenience, rather than even through the small difficulties of having to figure out how to interact with people we don't know in order to buy things from them?
3: Yeah, I agree with Sarah around this um, avoidance of of discomfort and I often talk about the need to tolerate painful and difficult emotions. Um, We may not welcome them, we may not celebrate them, but to find ways to tolerate them and ride the wave, if I can just explore that before we get on to the convenience um, story, that is the importance of knowing that every emotion is here for a reason. In fact, it's kind of a signpost or an invitation to explore, to dig deep, to act in some different way and perhaps um, trial and error with different behaviours in response to those emotions. But what we see many humans do is that as difficult emotions begin to rise, and I picture a wave as I'm having this conversation in my mind, is we cannot tolerate the discomfort of loneliness or disconnect or anxiety or depression or self-loathing or not knowing. And so we want to jump off at the, at the peak of the wave because we can't, we can't cope with that feeling and that intensity. And when we do that, we reinforce this idea that we can't cope, that we can't tolerate this emotion because we haven't allowed ourselves to ride the wave as it's subsided and given ourselves the feedback. Okay. It didn't feel great, but I coped with it and I can do it again. So we have this Um, sort of avoidance pattern at play here emotionally.
0: Is that because we can avoid it right so is that is that the technological piece of this the technology has given us the ability to avoid all of these things either because we can distract ourselves by entertaining ourselves on our phone in whatever way or because we have the technological means to avoid the uncomfortable human connections.
3: I think the technology piece is one piece of the puzzle but any avoidance strategy you know you can turn to alcohol you can turn to work there's so many things we can we can use to avoid and Sure, Um, to dial down that discomfort but it's a band-aid and at some point that sense of distress still sits with us almost on a cellular level we carry that with us and we carry that not only within us as individuals but the space between us as humans carries that as well and I think that magnifies this disconnection that we're talking about.
0: But how large is the role of technology in this? Because I'm trying to figure out if this is something that is really noticeable in young people today. So these are probably people born late 90s to mid 2000s, I think we're seeing a lot of this. What's changed for them? We can point to neoliberalism. We can point to capitalism in the way that Sarah's done. And there's a very strong argument for that. But that has also been building since the late 70s, early 80s. So what is it that's hit now? Why is this something that has really amplified at this point?
3: I think I think technology is, is very relevant here, but I'm always cautious to demonise technology. I think that I like to overlay some lens of optimism and also some lens of agency, that as humans and as teenagers, and I happen to have two that live with me, who I gave birth to when I said they live with me, it <laughs> yeah. sounds like I, I found them um, elsewhere. <laughs> and I know and I observe in them that they do want a sense of independence. They yeah. do want to connect with their friends. They do want to go out and see each other. My my youngest is doing Year 12. She wants to be um, going to 18th and celebrating the milestones.
1: For us Year 12s who are missing out on these formative Year 12 experiences like plays, formal, valedictory. And since this is our last year of school, these are experiences that we can never recover.
3: I'm not ready to throw the baby out with the teenage bathwater, if you like, at this point to say that. But so,
0: what's the cause then? If, it, if it's if it's not primarily technology, what else is it?
3: Um, what about role modelling? <laughs> so, as, as adults, as parents, um, how much are we connecting on a deep and meaningful level with each other? How much are we valuing our sense of knowing ourselves? And Sarah talked about this disconnect not only between but within and i think a lot of us have lost touch it sounds a little bit philosophical but have lost t- touch with who we are what we need and when we work out what our own unmet needs are both personally and in and relationally that's where i think some of this process needs to begin because our children it, it we've all heard this it's not what we it's not what we say but what we do and they're watching us we're we're attached to screens 24/7
0: yeah, doesn't that bring us back to technology, though? That's kind of. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yes. Yes. So. 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 But. 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 It's also. Let's. Not, I guess. I, I'm. I'm. I'm hesitant to blame technology or blame young people in the story that they're they're experiencing the world around them in a different way. So mm-hmm. yes, technology. It's. It's certainly. It's certainly very relevant. I think it's always important to go back to how have we been designed as humans? I like this anthropological lens and the world around us has changed so dramatically, but we haven't changed in the same ways that the world has. So in some ways we'll never catch up to some of these developments around us because we're hardwired to sit, to talk.
0: Our brains don't evolve in the way that the world evolves around us. Yeah,
3: And nor should they. And God help us if they ever do.
0: So, so can I be clear, when I talk about technology, I'm not talking about kids using technology. Yeah. I'm talking about the way in which technology has infused every interaction yeah. in life for everybody, yeah. And that fundamentally changes the connections. But anyway, I mean, there's a show on technology I would be more than happy to do. What I'm interested in though is the question of the richness of those connections, which is kind of where we started. And this is where COVID comes in, right? Yeah. So what... We're, lots of people around the world are in lockdown. But beyond that, there's social distancing. That means even if you're not in lockdown, you're likely doing Zoom meetings rather than face-to-face meetings.
1: So how can we make sure that they're getting the right data now so we don't have this problem again?
2: What's your daughter called? She's called Scarlet. Scarlet, I think it looks better on the lower shelf. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a lovely unicorn. Okay, so uh, obviously... his um, name. And do oh, stop me if you need to crack on. Do do tell know, us. Uh, what's his name? My name is really Christian. Your name? name's Christian. Christian? Yes. I am just deciding where it comes go. where mummy wants it to go. Oh, right. Where does my do want it to go? To go?
3: I think just on that shelf is great. Thanks. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in other words, all these human interactions that you had almost incidentally in your life have, are now being mediated via screens in some way and they're not the same we may not understand exactly why but we all get you walk out you know how you walk out of a zoom meeting and you're exhausted in a way that you're not when it's a face-to-face meeting what is the impact on our psychology our sense of loneliness or connectedness just of those little things of the fact that we've had to adjust to human interaction in those sort of subtle ways so Ben I'll start with you
3: yeah, so the way that human interaction has really been designed and historically has looked is that we have mirror neurons, we see each other um, behave in certain ways and and we we create a sense of empathy and exploration by physically being with other people. We compare who we are, we touch each other, we we explore each other in ways in person that is just not possible to do on screens. And I know even for me as a speaker, you've just made me think when you were talking about how exhausted we are after all these Um, Zooms, I'll do a keynote, I'll get off a stage typically and people will come up and say that really resonated, or they'll f- often find me in the toilet. That seems to be a place where people want to unload, and they'll start telling yes. you a, the to- <laughs> a toilet story of very personal <laughs> reflections of something that they've heard you talk
1: about.
0: Sorry, and- I've, g- I've given a lot of speeches. I've never been barred <laughs> up in a toilet. Is there something? Is there something I'm doing wrong about this?
1: <laughs> I think this is the specifics of male female toilet etiquette. To be honest, right? We're not as exposed.
3: Uh, ma-
0: male toilet etiquettes. We're more functional in the way that we go about and,
3: and even beyond toilet the toilet are. arena I would say the perhaps. same well I'd, perhaps okay. um,
0: <laughs> apologies for being sidetracked anyway go on.
3: <laughs> but um, as a speaker now I literally I sort of say thank you all this has been terrific I close the lid of my laptop I look at my two dogs almost like, how was that? Did I do good? You know, I'm kind of wanting to debrief. They look at me and um, I go on with my day. So I'm just giving that as an example of all the incidental touch points, toilet or not, that are lost in the process. And I think we're not aware of the loss we've had around these incidental touch points. There's no water cooler conversations. There's no opportunity now to hang over the um, internal, you know, desks at work in an open plan office. There's no time when we're just commuting and talking to even strangers about how their day is. There's no time to order a coffee and have a conversation. So we are being starved of incidental conversation.
0: But what about the interaction itself? Is there something just different and harder about having a conversation with someone via some kind of Zoom-like interface than face-to-face. What, what's going on psychologically when you do that?
3: Well, what, what's interesting is telehealth has now become the norm for a lot of us, for, for psychologists and health professionals. And there was a big conversation, you know, the government has never given a rebate for telehealth before because it has been deemed the second cousin, I guess, to the face-to-face therapy traditionally offered. And so I'm going to actually challenge something you've just said in that I have found through telehealth that um, when I don't have that physical, those physical cues to go on and we're not sharing a space together, I become almost more in tune with other cues. I'm listening to um, breath. That's on a phone call. If I'm actually on a a video screen, I'm watching for all kinds of mannerisms. So I think we do have the capacity to re-hone perhaps um, our, our ways of connecting. But I will still preface all of that by saying something is lost um, when we don't share a physical space. I think we're also watching the clock in a different way, perhaps. When we're face to face, there's a, a fluency and uh, letting things unfold because we've still got eye contact on screen. A lot of these, I think there's something intangible at play here and something about energy, for want of a better word, that's yes. that's lost.
0: Yeah. So I- I have a theory, Sarah. I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I might be totally wrong about it, but I just feel like when you're interacting virtually in that way, all these cues that you subconsciously pick up on that inform your response and make it fluid sort of aren't there. So you kind of have to work harder to pick up. The, you don't. You don't know you're doing it, but you, you. It's. It's just not as effortless. You have to look. You have to pay attention to something that's a lot more confined in order to pick up the little social cues that facilitate conversation. And over the course of half an hour, an hour, a day of meetings, that's, that's exhausting, isn't it?
1: It is because I think we're having to respond to fairly precise cues. Um, and since we're wading a little into woo-woo territory here, I think something that's not explored, but I'm sure um, there are scientists who've found studies to back this, is uh, hormones smell, also the spatial referencing. So where somebody's sitting and seeing it in sort of a certain type of framing, they're all very subliminal um, cues that we, we receive constantly, energetic kind of cues, right? And that's how we do a lot of our subliminal subconscious gauging of how to read somebody and understand things we're now having to get the same kind of information um, at a satisfactory level by reading fairly straightforward stuff that requires cognit- the cognitive side of our brain. We're sort of having to do the same job, but with half the, the data.
0: So what are the long-term consequences of all this then? if If it's exhausting in this way, we're living through an extended period of that kind of Um, separation even if not isolation we're doing our interactions probably for quite a while now in this way that misses out on all the incidental human interactions that have been so important to us whether we realize that or not and then within those interactions they're harder because the cues that we normally use are missing like what happens to us as as a species are there long-term effects of this?
3: Yeah, I think we just need to differentiate something here. And actually you've got two, you know, a case study of two on this on this conversation with Sarah and I, and that is Sarah living alone and describing some of the challenges um, in, in lockdown and with reduced connectivity for her. And then I think it is important because there will be others listening who, who are living in family units. Um, I'm living with a husband, two teenagers, two dogs. So it might sound like my tribe is alive and well or connected you know because we're all living together but for many of us l- living with other humans we're feeling this loss of as i say agency and control and autonomy because we're not getting to uh interact with a range of people it's the same group i don't want to throw my whole family unit under the bus in this one conversation <laughs> <laughs> but i think you know I, i've i've sort of coined this term during covid that we've got a lot of people feeling isolated and we've got a lot of people feeling ag- agitated. <laughs> And um, those who are living with many people are feeling agitated often and those who are living alone feeling um, isolated. And we need to acknowledge both groups of people in this mix because to answer your your next question, Waleed, moving forward, um, we're going to see a different response to these different experiences, I think. So, you know, the grass is always greener for, for many humans. And I think when you're living alone, you're, you're fantasizing about how great it would be to be living in a, in a family unit. And when you're living in a family unit, you're thinking, I kind of like the idea of living alone. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Yes. But either way you cut it, whichever of those groups you fall into, or even some kind of thing that's in between those two things, are we looking at long-term changes?
3: Um, you know, there's no crystal ball and one of the things we can, we can refer to is other times in history when we have been um, disconnected or when we have faced great uncertainty and how have, we, how have we got back on our feet or how has it impacted us long term. I know one of the questions someone asked me recently was, you know, many, many people who live through a war still talk about the impact, the permanent impact of the war on those generations. And that's one of the questions we're asking now is will this have a permanent effect because intergenerational um, experiences get passed down whether that generation before ha- after has actually lived through the experience personally. You know, for instance, in the Holocaust, we see um, generations after the Holocaust still telling the stories of trauma when they didn't themselves live through it. And that is, our, I think that that would be one of the worst case scenarios for us post this time is for this some kind of intergenerational disconnect and loneliness and emotional depletion to be passed on from generation to generation.
1: I think there's also an opportunity here as well. And I'm going to quote um, sort of the founder of modern neoliberalism, Milton Friedman, I- rather ironically, I think he said, only a crisis produces real change. And when that crisis occurs, the actions take and depend on the ideas that are lying around. And it's one of my favorite quotes, because um, then we go, all right, well, what are the ideas that are going to be lying around as we emerge from the COVID crisis, but then also the recession? What are the ideas that we want to take forward? And because crisis can be a great disruptor and a great, you know, refresh. And the loneliness issue has been around for a a number of decades now, and it's been heightened and magnified by COVID. And so our opportunity is to go, well, what kind of connected life do we want? And we, I think COVID's made us aware of how important it is and how important, the the missing piece for both um, people like Sabina and I are the, the community. It is in fact community. It's an overused word, but You don't necessarily need more time with your family. And for me, I actually am fine living on my own so long as we both just need those um, sort of secondary interactions with the person who makes our coffee, the person in the toilet at the end of a presentation. Those are the things that we need to start fostering and enabling. And we need to undo the damage that removing all of those moral umpires did, I guess, around about 50 years ago we need to actually put back in place some of those moral guardrails to lead us almost intuitively and effortlessly to more meaningful connections in our communities right now we've got a great opportunity as we're doing now to discuss these ideas that they're lying around when policymakers start to move forward in in the coming years
0: let's get a little bit concrete specific sorts of examples what do you think happens as a result of the fact that we have stopped shaking hands for months potentially years perhaps it's time to forget the the handshaking for the moment because that's a very easy way to transmit the virus or we don't hug each other when we meet at work or socially
2: and so the questions are really important about hugs and handshakes i i I suggest that we have reached a point at the moment where a handshake is no longer something we should be doing socially. It has become very much part of our culture over a very long time. Handshakes are are something we should avoid at this point in time, we all know that. When it comes to hugs, um, I encourage you to, if you are within your family unit, the people you live with, whether it's your children or your loved one, of course, if they live with you, you can hug. but when it comes to the broader community and hugging uh, others outside of your family unit, then no, we we really think that at this point in time, we need to think of innovative and different ways to show um, a welcome or a greeting to someone, but not a hug, Tamsin. I think uh, at some point, perhaps in the future, we may reach a point where we would uh, see hugging again, but not at this point in time.
0: Do these sorts of changes stay? Do they? Change the way we view each other so that we're no longer people we want to connect with, we're potential sources of illness. Like what Psychologically, what, what happens with all that stuff?
3: I think we just feel, I, I, we keep, you know, disconnection is such an overused word, but I think we, we hunger for something between us. Touch has been around since the dawn of time, and I'm not talking about just intimate and sexual touch, but the need to, uh, you know, a, a reaffirming touch to assure someone is a big part of letting someone know you're there with them. So we've lost part of our arsenal here. We've, we've lost part of our toolkit for how to um, see and be and relate to each other.
0: But do you think it's so ingrained that it will necessarily yes. come back?
1: Yes.
3: Or do
0: you think it's possible we disrupt it?
1: I do. I do. I think we can't stop that. And I think there were studies done, um, or sort of observations made post the Spanish flu and, uh, in the 19, you know, the 1918 or so. And what they found is it, t- it took a couple of years for the, Europe to get comfortable shaking hands and hugging again. But it happened, so it might just take a couple of years. We might have laughing conversations about it, uh, as we are already when we do elbow shakes. You know, it's kind of we're very, very self-aware of it. I think it'll just take some time for that to come back, and um, and I'm not worried about that aspect of things. It's an urge that I don't think any kind of um, virus can 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 rid ourselves of.
3: No, I'm not worried that that won't return. I guess the question we're asking is what do we do in the interim when that piece of, that piece of um, human behaviour is missing? And, and what impact does that have? And
0: irreplaceably so, really. That's the thing about it. Yeah, It
3: is. It is. But I think, you know, like in any challenging situation, we need to put the issues on the table yeah. instead of avoiding them or saying, well, this is how it is. You know, one of my least favorite sayings is it is what it is. I can't stand it. I don't know. I don't know how that helps anyone. It <laughs> to, is what it is. To be
0: fair, it is usually true that things are what they are. Oh,
3: well, I don't care. <laughs> but 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 <laughs> above <laughs> it is what it is. You know, I think it's useful to say we're missing something here. How um I wish I could touch you. I miss touching you. I want to hug um when I hug you what I you know what I feel when you hug me what I feel. So let's not stop the conversation that we're actually all grieving something here. And grief is the difference between where we are and where we thought we would be. And boy, are we not where we thought we would be. So grief is going to be a very natural response to that. And we don't need death to equate with grief. We are all grieving.
1: Oh, yeah. I totally agree. I totally agree. More discussion around grief. As soon as I start talking about it um, in relation to, say, for instance, the climate crisis, which is a big part of all of this as well because it's kind of the elephant in the room in most discussions, i you know when you start talking about the fact that a lot of us are grieving the future that we would have we're grieving the stuff that we took for granted and we're now seeing that our children are not going to have access to Mm. when we start talking about that i can just feel this visible relief like oh my god somebody's naming it somebody's talking about it and grief i think is going to be the new the new buzzword because i think it's going to be pretty heavy
0: All right, who wants to weigh in on sex and dating? Oh, me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh,
3: me
0: too.
1: <laughs> okay, you go first. As, as, the, as the representative single person here, um, I, 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 might be, I might be well equipped.
0: <laughs> well, you, I'm, I'm, you confirm this for me. Are we talking about something that has been severely disrupted? Like you would assume so, given the effect of lockdowns and so on.
1: Yeah, look, I'm speaking um, from the comfortable suburbs of Sydney, the eastern part of Sydney, and it is a very different experience to what's been happening in Victoria and also in other parts of the world. At first, you know, when we were all in lockdown, it was extremely difficult. And there was sort of a lot of discussion around the fact that on sort of online dating, Women in particular were going, oh, my God, thank goodness blokes have suddenly joined the party. They can actually have a conversation with us. And, <laughs> you know, there were phone calls happening. And it was a bit like old school dating and courtship where, well, we can't meet up, so let's actually have a proper conversation. And it was quite wonderful to see how that transformed all our thinking behind it. I, I'm fairly open about this. I go on and off dating apps. I'm sort of intrigued by it um, slash hopeful. And I find that, I found that actually it has shifted the dynamic um, on there. Even in Sydney, there is still this idea that talking is actually not a bad thing and there's not this immediate need to, to meet up and go full throttle. Um, so I actually think it's produced a more mindful approach to things, to be honest.
0: Do you think it's lasting?
1: I think it could. I, I'm, I'm witnessing it lasting a couple of months already I think it could continue I think there's a bit more stability there's a lot of flakiness in the dating realm and um, a lot of no-showing a lot of like just not returning the message because you can that's what technology enables it enables you to pretend you haven't seen the message if it's a little bit difficult Um, and I actually have noticed a distinct shift not in all scenarios but I think that there is there's also a sadness and a desire to talk about more meaningful stuff. So it sort of opened it opened the the door to that, and I'm noticing that kind of conversation is continuing amongst the various random blokes that I interact with on these sites and in real life.
0: <laughs> I like that you describe them as random.
1: They are random. Trust me, Wally. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, I mean, it might might be hard for you to have a view of all this I suppose because you are only your age but do you think what you've observed is true across demographics so different generations are experiencing the same sort of thing?
1: Yes yes Um, and I say this again uh, I'm exposing a little bit too much of myself but I have included this in my book so it's public knowledge. I'm 46 and I tend to date men in their mid-20s through to men in their mid-50s. So I feel that I can probably speak for at least um, the different age groups, maybe not the same mindsets. But yeah, I, I, think, I actually think millennials dictate the dating scene on these apps and the rest of us follow. But I am noticing that this kind of stuff is playing out pretty universally.
0: So you think millennials are having the same experience of a tilt towards conversation, perhaps more serious types of Engagement. Right. Okay. Sabina, what have you found on the dating apps?
3: Oh, uh, yeah. Well, my, my random blokes. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not actually on the dating apps, but I have worked clinically with a lot of people who share a lot of dating stories, some of them awfully entertaining, including if I hear one more time, well, um, you know, we, we swipe left, we swipe right, then we met each other. Um, For a date, but then in Melbourne we got locked down, so we had to spend the night together. I've had that from many, I've heard that story many times. So, in some ways, it's fast tracking um, some of the dating behaviour. But I think, with regards to what Sarah said around more meaningful conversations, I've observed that in the dating, again, not firsthand, but in the dating arena, that it's very difficult to have a sort of a meaningless, flippant conversation with the mood, I guess, of the world as it is. And so I'm actually seeing, yes, of course, people can ghost you and, and they cannot get back to you. But for some people dating, they're having really meaningful, long conversations, both on the phone or in writing. And in some ways, that harks back to um, more traditional dating practices where we can really get to know someone over time by using the written word and being more considered about the messaging that we want to share, which is actually quite different to picking someone up in a pub after five vodkas. Some of this process is perhaps slowing down and creating a more a, a, a more meaningful connection. Of course, w- at the end of that process, what we need is to be released again into the wild <laughs> to have the face-to-face connection that we've talked so much about in this conversation.
0: Yeah, and th- and that's what I wonder where once the wild returns and everyone's out in the wilderness, whether the sort of more superficial urges that were perhaps driving this Return because they are so irresistible, you know, because they are so powerful. Do you have a psychological view on that?
3: Uh, Well, I think what you're tapping into there is some of our most primal urges and so, yes, they will because they always have.
0: So does that eradicate the the benefits that you both talk um, about?
3: not because if we look at if we if we plotted ourselves as humans over time we've got these basic primal urges these basic human needs but then over time in response to different pressure points and experiences in history we tweak and shift and we tweak and shift and so I think if you have this very long-term view of plotting behavior over time we still if you want to talk in positives and negatives I think we still have the capacity to to tweak and take some of those positive elements with us. It's not an acute increase in, on the on the chart, but we're still able to reflect on, okay, part of that worked. What part of that can I take with me while I still continue to explore, you know, some of these basic human, human needs?
1: Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. And I think that um, as we emerge from all of this, the challenges that we face are actually more nourishing and original than the challenges that we faced before COVID with the technological enabling I reckon the world, and if we look at it through the lens of the dating realm, had gone into this kind of state of ascetic, flaccidity, blarness, whateverness, can't be botheredness, and enabled by technology. And in the dating realm, that played out, you know, through the ghosting and the no-shows and the kind of, you know, emoticons instead of an actual answer. And What we're going to be emerging with now is a more interesting, at the edge of our true, vibrant, sort of tactile experience um, kind of a challenge. We want to touch, we want to have meaningful kind of conversations with the opposite sex or with each other. Or
3: with the same sex, if that's the case. Or with the same sex, exactly.
1: And I think, um, I actually think that's a far more interesting challenge to rise from. Rising from a state of asleepness and kind of cocooned, stuffy, don't have to even try, I can hide behind my avatar type stuff. Trying to rise from that is very difficult. Trying to rise from a place of denial and we've been... Prevented from actually meeting up with each other, that I actually think will see us rally towards a better version of our our dating selves. I'm actually quite excited about it. I think there's a there's a pivot point. It, it will actually it's got a bit more traction to it.
0: Which to return to the theme is difficulty, hardship, discomfort. Being generative, like creating some kind of positive benefit, that yes, which is kind of where we started.
3: I just wanted to share a personal story. You know, I think we are storytellers by by nature. And as I am listening to this conversation unfold, I am reflecting on a personal story, and that's my grandmother who died at one hundred and six. She was had lived a very full and long life. She was her and her husband were the oldest married couple in Australia by age. He was one hundred and three when he died, the original Toy Boy. And when I used to talk to her about stories over her life and I would say things could be in any domain I might say oh what about that you know um ah, pineapple diet or something and she'd go oh yes that was around in the 30s and then I'd say (laughs) something about a hemline or a fashion and she'd say yes we did that in the 50s and then I'd say (laughs) you know something about when you're you know wanting more time to yourself and she'd say yes that was great when my husband was away at war when we had some time to ourselves everything didn't matter what story I came up with in what domain of life She knew people in the Titanic, you know, she she, she was like an encyclopedia of experience. And what it affirmed for me was we've all been here before. We've all navigated in different, under different headings, but the human experience shows that we have a, a way of navigating different pressure points and challenges and coming back to these universal human norms
0: sabina i'm very interested in this thing you just mentioned in passing about accelerated relationships so um, lockdown hits, quick, we better move in together. And suddenly we're four months, a year, whatever it is ahead of where we otherwise would be. Now, I don't know how that's turned out, whether it's turned out for better or for worse in, all, in these relationships. I imagine it's a mixture of the two.
3: <laughs> we don't know. We don't know how it's turned out yet. But in response to that, I would say that, um, again, even COVID aside, often I'll talk to couples about, Are you going to de- are you going to slide or decide? if this is a relationship that you want. And so many times people will say, well, I'm tired of sort of carrying my toothbrush back and forth and I don't just want an underwear drawer, I wanna actually move in because I'm tired of the commute. So there's been many stories of sliding into relationships I talk a lot about unmet needs and we've all got them. We've all got them at work. We've all got them at home. We've got them personally and professionally. And we need to continue to share what some of those unmet needs are with each other and to invite others to share what their unmet needs are too. That doesn't mean that we are the person that needs to fix and solve those those gaps, but um, to acknowledge that we're all sort of searching and I I think that that is universal as well and if we don't have these conversations, we minimise the experiences that so many of us have. Um, Without human connection, we have nothing. I love Esther Perel, the um, psychotherapist, quote, that the quality of our lives determines, uh, sorry, the, the quality of our relationships determines the quality of our lives. And I think that is such a true statement that if our relationships are struggling, if we're in pain between each other, in the space between each other, then our lives um, our lives bleed you know, in some way. So without meaningful connections and relationships, we have nothing.
0: Uh, I want to get to the watching brief in just a second. Before I do that, though, I want to give each of you just a chance to say anything you think might be useful or relevant about other kinds of important or close relationships that we have in our lives. So these could be relationships with work colleagues. This could be familial relationships. Is there anything you see in that area that would be worth paying attention to?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, I think uh, COVID in particular has been the great revealer of a great deal of redundancies in our lives. So that black SUV we spent our lives saving up for that sat in the driveway for months on end. We suddenly go, hmm, not so important, but um, other things suddenly became very important. And I think that's going to happen with our relationships. And I'm noticing around me a lot of people finding it interesting, also very challenging and confronting, that there are some relationships in their lives that have become quite redundant. And I think as we start to shift our priorities, as we start to have the stark realities, of the future put in front of us, Um, we're having to make starker decisions about who we spend our time with and I think that we're already starting to veer towards the more meaningful relationships and they take different forms. Anyone who's gone through some kind of crisis, either a sickness or a major loss, it's often very surprising people who come forward, not necessarily your best friends. Sometimes it'll be an acquaintance that steps up and becomes the real supporter. And I think that that's going to be a very interesting thing for people.
0: Uh, all that's left now really is the watching brief for us. Uh, what space would each of you say you are watching uh, on this area? Sabina?
3: things that I'm watching and have for some time is uh, the role of labels in our society. And as a psychologist, I think many people expect that I would be quite fond of labels, diagnostic labels perhaps, and I'm not. I like to take more of a a human lens and think about what we have in common, not what we have different. And uh, I think perhaps that theme is rising to the top in louder ways than it ever has as we continue to look for commonality or as at least I hope we continue to look for commonality instead of differences and when I'm talking about labels I'm talking about anything from um, sexuality and gender, religion to as I say diagnostic psychiatric labels as well and I'm, I'm always keen to ask people I work with or socialize with what does that label mean to you and for some people a label is really meaningful whether that's single or married, whether that's um, depression or anxiety, whether that's a parent or not a parent. And for other people, they'll say that label's not meaning to me. And I, I, would, I would love to see more of us having a conversation about the role of labels in society and acknowledging that they're
0: not always serving us well. Sarah, um, what are you watching?
1: Well, like most of the world, the November US election, I think it's going to provide a great opportunity. I think we're very concerned about what's going to happen, no matter whether Trump wins or loses or or whatever. Um, but I think one lesson that we could get from this in a far more inclusive and positive way is to see that fault him, love him, whatever. Trump's skill in many ways has been to attend to a disconnect, a despair that exists in well US but also I think more broadly and I think that we need to learn from that we need to learn that there are segments of the community who are feeling very left out very unheard and that tribalism that Trump was able to harness not always in the most uh, sort of how can I say it, positive ways, constructive ways, healthy ways. However, there is something to be said there. And I think that this is something that we need to watch. I think we need to learn from it. And that's going to be our most nourishing learning, I feel, from whatever unfolds in the US election.
3: And he also he also invites belonging, and everyone's looking for what tribe can I belong to? And as we've talked about, religion for many people was that sense of belonging that's been lost for a lot of people. So he's some kind of um, invitation to belonging, and even perhaps without people thinking what am I belonging to, because we rate belonging over uh, belonging to something over belonging to nothing.
0: He provides meaning, doesn't he? It might be a mirage, it, it might be not very thought through, it might be superficial, whatever, but it is meaning. It's a form of meaning that he provides. So we began with elbow bumps and we ended up with the US election and Donald Trump. That, I guess, is what happens when you have a discussion with such fertile minds as both of yours. Thank you so much for helping me out today. I really, really appreciate
3: it. Yeah, big elbow hugs to you.
0: <laughs> I didn't know you could do an elbow hug, but I'll have a crack at it. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Oh, I've been doing lots of elbow hugs because I'm desperate for hugs. What else can I <laughs> hug with? I
0: feel, I feel like an elbow hug is probably more dangerous than just a hug. Like you probably have to get closer and you'd probably knock someone out. <laughs> no, honestly, we could have kept going forever. So it was a testament to both of you, so thank you.
1: Looking for your next favourite podcast? Why don't you head over to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat.